0: Howdy, Tonzilla Files. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. Tanzilla Xpod, hi there, Substack. If you want all that stuff, the Twitter channel no longer there. It has been blown up. Blued up a couple months ago. I have not missed it. I have not been to the Twitter in uh, a long time. Facebook page was taken down, uh, I don't know, three or four months ago, I guess. And uh, finally, uh, opened it back up. I guess this week To uh, I don't know Kind of give it an opportunity To see if anybody Wants to do anything with it If not Fuck it I don't really care (laughs) It's been uh, Six months I think Since I've recorded A fresh and new podcast Did you miss me? Yeah? Good I guess I could get into why I haven't been recording too many, uh, or haven't recorded any, I guess, since February, since the snow is flying. I should mention this. It's, uh, what's the date today? Uh, July 29th, 2023. You might hear some ambient noise. We're in the middle of a thunderstorm up here, and I am praying to God that the power doesn't go out in this house. We've moved to a small town out of Kalamazoo. Uh, we've got some obscure power company, and apparently... My power goes out quite a bit here. Lost it again, uh, I don't know, for like two hours the other day. Hopefully, the worst we get is the sound of uh, rumbling thunder outside. Then I guess I can look at this as maybe a a trial run. Get back on the horse a little bit. But it's been an interesting six months. The last uh, couple of weeks particularly, if you look at my pretty little nose for you folks on the uh, the video stuff, uh, I got smacked in the face with a softball. I started playing softball. That's new. I haven't played softball in years. Decided to get out and uh, join a co-ed league with my wife. I've been doing pretty good, you know, I'm getting old. 52 years old, going to be 53 in September, and uh, playing outfield. I used to play outfield a lot when I was younger. Was really good at it once upon a time, if I do say so myself, and I just did. And I went out there, and uh, you notice I'm not wearing glasses. Now you folks on the podcast, you didn't notice, but I'm not wearing glasses. I got contacts. Part of the reason I went and got them was I was, I was having trouble in the outfield. My eyes don't focus anymore. I wear bifocals. I could see the ball coming off the bat. I could track it. But when it got, like, within the last 10 feet, all of a sudden, the depth perception was just just batty. So I decided i go get contacts. I need an updated prescription. Anyway, got them. I loved them. First game I went out there, <laughs> contacts. All right, I, I'm, I'm a little, like, edged over toward left center field. Fly ball comes out to the outfield. It's in foul territory full sprint over there. I'm like, can I catch this? Can I catch her? Yes, I can catch this. I'm there. Put my glove up to catch it off the tip of my glove and slammed me right between the eyes. I went down in a heap. Oh, Hurt like hell, obviously. And there's blood. It was like the shining, the elevator scene and the shining was coming out of my fucking nose. I knew I broke it immediately and uh, got up, got out of there. Wife drove me to the hospital I had to sit there and go get a CT scan because, like I said, it hit me right in between the eyes up yonder here, right? Right there. Above the bridge, but on the bridge, too. But it hit me square. It hit me flush and straight on because I judged the ball perfectly. I got in great position to catch that damn ball. Right there. <laughs> Just fucking missed it. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, they had to do a CT scan. They wanted to make sure that I didn't, you know, fracture the skull or whatever. Another, no problems there. Uh, they did detect several slightly displaced fractures and a possibly uh, damaged symptom. Now, I just had a septoplasty done about a year and a half ago. That was one of the worst experiences in my life. If they ever try to sell you a freaking septoplasty and you don't absolutely need it, and you don't like sitting on the couch for a week, bleeding out your nose in pain, don't get it. If you don't have to get a septoplasty... Anyway, I went through all of that a year and a half ago, and then the doctor over there tells me, you may have a damaged septum. We're going to set up an appointment with a plastic surgeon so she can tell you whether or not she recommends that you have some sort of corrective procedure done. Now's was a good time. Anyway, it didn't really hurt afterwards. After I got hit, this is this is really bizarre. It hurt when it hit me, and it hurt for probably thirty seconds, maybe a minute afterwards. While I'm lying there on the ground, blood coming out my, but then I got up, I walk up to the dugout, and I notice it just kind of felt numb. There wasn't really any pain involved, just this this blood gushing out of my out of my nose. We play on a co-ed team. One of the girls from the team went into her her purse and took out a tampon. Stuffed it up my nose. I didn't even realize what it was. I've not a lot of experience with tampons, believe it or not. (laughs) So she's got this thing shoved up in there. It worked beautifully. I don't know what brand it was. I would happily give it five stars on some website if I knew what it was because it lasted a long time and it absorbed every drop of blood out of that, that one side. The other side was swollen up, wasn't bleeding at all. Anyway, they set the appointment up. I didn't really even want to go because, like I said, I I didn't want this doctor to tell me that I was going to need another procedure done. I probably – I was breathing okay. I thought I was a little uh, less uh, breathability coming through the left nostril. So I thought maybe I had done something, but she immediately told me that it was just inflammation. But I was afraid the whole time that that she was going to try to sell me some nasal procedure again, and I really didn't want to get that done. But I'm like, well – Probably ought to go have a look, just in case. You know, you never know. And thankfully, she was straight up on the level. You don't need anything. It looks straight. You're fine. All I had to do. This is how they test to see if you've got some sort of damage in your in your your, your nasal cavity. I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a problem breathing in and out of this nostril. All you had to do, pull it over, and boom. She's like, yeah. If you can do that, it's just inflammation. You don't have to worry about it. I'm like, oh, thank you. Could have hugged her, but uh, probably would have gotten DEI'd. Anyway, I just have to, like, uh, uh, kind of be careful with it for about six weeks until the, the healing process is done, and then I'm fine. But I think I'm done with softball. The thing with the contacts, that's exactly, it had to be that. That ball was right fucking there. I have never, for years and years and years playing baseball, softball, all of it, I have never <laughs> taken any balls to the face Go ahead, laugh. Never happened. And the trouble that I was having in the outfield catching the ball with the glasses and the depth perception, the last 15, 20 feet, that had to be it. And I went out there and went to the game last Sunday. I wasn't going to play or anything because I wasn't sure what was going on with the nose. And I thought it would be one of the silliest things in the world to go out there and, you know, get whacked again. So I just sat there, coach first base most of the time. But I went out the outfield afterwards. There were some people out there. Hitting the ball around taking some batting practice. I figure, okay, I want to go out there. No pressure. I'm not going to really try to uh, you know, go out and catch the ball, but I want to see if I can judge it. Pfft. Great off the bat. 15, 20 feet away from me, boy. Like bouncing. It's like, uh. No. I think my softball playing days are done. That sucks. Getting old sucks, asshole. I don't want to give that up. I can run like crazy. Felt great out there. Made some nice catches. I didn't, you know, it wasn't all <laughs> blood and gore. But it felt good, you know, get out there to kind of do some of this stuff that I'd done when I was a younger man. Felt good to be able to do it at this age until <laughs> that's the worst part of it. It's like you got to admit to yourself that you just can't quite do it anymore. Everybody gets to that point, I suppose. I'm trying to think what else has happened uh how much? I've been working on the yard. Got a nice nice green uh, patch of grass out there, finally. That's been nice. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you've heard this before. You know, I've meant to sit down and record multiple times. And it always ends up the same way. And I'm going to get into this, I think, a little bit uh, probably today, if I get to this last section that I've got put together here. A lot of this has to do with the inactivity anyway. Just why am I doing all of this? Now, why am I putting together the prep? Why am I going and, and you know, dicking around with OBS software <clears throat> that I have no concept of, really? Doing a, a live stream to no one. You know, the podcast downloads have been, again, they continue to be pretty good. Surprisingly, even after being off six months, I, you know, I have more downloads than I'm probably entitled to. But what's missing is the why. What do I hope to achieve here? I have to have something that I'm running toward, especially because this podcast isn't monetized. Talked about this before. Sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it keeps rearing its head. If I were making money, you know, if I were being paid for these downloads or being paid a salary, yeah, maybe it would be easier to come in here. But I'm not, and I don't want to because, as I've said, then when you you start monetizing things, you start pandering, and you start tailoring things to whoever is in your audience. I don't think that's a good thing. I've talked about this many times. I mean, that's why we have the boutique news media that we have. These people are crafting their product to put it in front of the right eyeballs, agreeing eyeballs, to gather a certain type of audience with certain beliefs, certain ideas, so they can put those eyeballs in front of the advertisers and make more money. So what money does to media? A lot of people have asked, you know, how do we... How do we fix the media? How do we get back to that free press and the, uh, you know, the the enlightened citizenry? Blah blah blah. You gotta get money out of it, but you're never gonna be able to do that. And you probably, I don't know that you should. And then what do you got? How do you pay for it? And then who are you beholden to? Right. A lot of reading I've done, a lot of history stuff that I've I've gotten into over the last couple of years, especially. Going back to shortly after the revolution, back in the 1800s, in in the early 1900s, the media has always been kind of like this. It's been adversarial, it's been sensationalized, it's been slanderous, you know, essentially full of shit from the inception. The difference, though, is the technology. The difference, obviously, is the electronic media being able to uh, reach people instantaneously, the fragmentation How many choices of news media do you have? And all that money that's involved. So if you've got every single ideology, every single viewpoint, every single worldview that's being pandered to, where does the truth fit? Where does the truth fit when put before an audience that demands to have its worldview reinforced? What happens to you? You go bankrupt. You no longer cease to be. So when you talk about fixing the media, Media one oh one podcast is one of the first five or ten that I did. I did this back in what was it, twenty eighteen, I think? Go listen to that. It's not fixable. It just can't be. It cannot be fixed. I got a picture of Ed Murrow up there. He warned about, you know, monetizing news. Way back in the day, I know I'm being a little redundant for some of you, but way back in the day, like in the 40s and 50s, when television news first came about, the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, they all had news divisions, but they were expected to run at a loss. It was not a for-profit endeavor. It wasn't monetized. The news was not a commodity. The entertainment uh, portions of these networks basically subsidized news divisions of these networks. And it started to move toward a pandering to an audience, entertainment value, and Edward, Mur- Edward R. Murrow, I think it was 1958 or 59, maybe 1960, I forget now. Got a, an episode back that has the speech in it, but he gave a speech basically to the heads, the, the, the powers that be within television media, and warned what would happen if you turned news and information, especially news, into a commodity, prophetic it's exactly what happened. The movie network gets into that back in the, in the mid-70s, 76, I think. What happens when you monetize your information streams, your news, your current events, when you monetize the thing that the public depends upon to become enlightened, become that enlightened citizenry, when you turn that into a money-making venture, good luck. So, yeah, the news media, hmm. But everything's changed. Everything has changed. Like I said before, the deceit and the uh, partisan hackery within the media, it's always been, you know, a factor. There's always been a a push and a pull between different factions trying to gain access to the levers levers of power. And they'll use any underhanded tactic they they can get their hands on, pamphlets, newspapers, back in the day stump speeches Father Coughlin he had the radio he was one of the first ones to turn himself into sort of a pundit he was beyond that i think he was the most listened to uh media personality in the 1930s big populist I supported huey long i think and uh initially supported franklin roosevelt but to him roosevelt didn't go far enough and he, coughlin hated communists Convinced himself that FDR was a communist. Go where you want to with that. But then he turned himself into basically a pseudo-Nazi, anti-Semite, anti-New Deal dude. And he became literally, I think, the father of hate radio. This is clear back in the 1930s. Fewer options back then. He had millions and millions and millions of listeners. Father Coughlin, I'm surprised that more people don't know who he is, don't know anything about him, and it's really hard to get information on this guy. I finally went out and got a a biography. The only one I could find wasn't very good. It's all right. It's like 200 pages, 250 pages, something like that. Maybe it was 300, but it just wasn't good. And you could tell that a lot of stuff was left out, like uh, stuff from the Catholic Church, you know, sort of glossing over their sanctioning of what he was doing. And you could tell that he had kind of perused the book and taken, you know, little aspects of it. It wasn't a very deep-diving, probing book, but Father Coughlin was still alive when it was written, so he was involved. Uh, But that's the best thing that I can find on this Coughlin guy. We're interested in the history of partisan media. I don't even want to call it hackery. It's just the evolution of media in this country. From the pamphleteering days, I guess, back in the 1700s, 1800s. And now it's moved into the internet, cable television. Good luck fixing the media. It's not the media. I've said this before, that if people wanted objective fact, unbiased information, if that's the thing that people clamored for, the people that own these media outlets and the people that want to make money via these media outlets, that's exactly what they'd get. People do not want that. This podcast started, I I started to uh, walk with the assumption that propaganda was something that was being thrust upon us, that if we could only understand it, then we could learn to see it, to dismiss it. That the power was in our hands to keep this evil product away from us. That's where I originally started with this. And again, I know I'm being redundant for some of you. A lot of new listeners whenever I uh, come back like this. But it didn't take long. Maybe a, I don't know, a year? What did, it, did it even take a year? I don't know. But I'm digging through this Jacques Ellul book, Propaganda. And then there's, there's this se- a segment in it called The Need for Propaganda. And I'm like, what? Well, wait a minute. What's this? And he got into the whole idea that people it. People can't do without it. Self-deceit and the inability or unwillingness, one or the other, either or, it, you know, functionally and practically, it doesn't really matter. But whether it's a human failing or just a character flaw, whether we're unwilling or unable to see reality for what it is, it's inherent. That's long been... A deep interest of mine, all the way back to probably, I guess, around 2009, and <laughs> propaganda unexpectedly led right back into that frame of mind, that thought train that I had. So that's where I've been going the last couple of years, and it's steadily, um, <laughs> well, it's borne fruit, but it's not hopeful fruit. You know, this is this is the why. Why am I doing this? Am I trying to help people not do this? And if that's the case, is this even possible? (laughs) Can anybody really see the world as it is? Can anybody really shut off that storyteller mind, that narcissistic, self-delusional mind that wants its worldview reinforced, only wants its worldview reinforced? How effectively can people shut that down? It actually try to see the world as it actually is. Part of this thing that I've got here, inherent human deceit, gets into that. Again, I've looked for every ounce of hope, a sliver of proof that people could do this. That it's not a matter of want. I don't think it's a matter of want. See, that's the thing. I used to wonder whether it was just like a character flaw that millions of us had or if it was just this inability, a cognitive inability, maybe the tools of perception were, were corrupted and we couldn't see. Whatever. I didn't know. I always assumed I wanted to believe the best in us. I wanted to believe the best in myself, really. So, by saying I believe in us, I'm saying I believe in me. But every indication... Is that we can do it, but it takes an incredible amount of self awareness and training to get to that point. The kind of self awareness that almost no one is willing to engage in because that kind of self awareness is painful, it's humbling. <laughs> my, my mind is going to like victimization. And people like to consider themselves victims one of our favorite things to do is to blame somebody else for something that's wrong well that kind of self awareness the mirror starts to turn around a little bit and if you continue down that road far enough long enough and you're doing it right then accountability really and then once you're aware and once you realize that you have you should be accountable if this is something you really want to do then it turns into a choice Either I choose to do this or I choose not to do it. Once you're aware, you can't turn that back. You can't go back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't, you know, run back to the nation of the country of unawareness and pretend and legitimately and authentically claim you don't know what's going on. People stop before they get to that point. I think people, most people, they stop long before they get there because that thing called cognitive dissonance kicks in. And they know. That once they start looking deep enough within and doing it with clear eyes, that their crutches are taken away. And, you know, the stuff that I used to talk about called social momentum, that kicks in. It's where you start thinking about things you've said, things you've done to other people maybe. Uh, and how you would have to take a lot of that back or eat a lot of crow in front of a lot of people that you really, you need their support. You want their support, with their friendship. It's humiliating. Talked how that's another way that people, another reason, or another um, a blockage, I guess, to people reevaluating their belief systems, religion, politics, whatever, that if they really went to it, they'd have to go back and they'd have to, they'd remember some things they've said, said to other people about other people, done to other people. Decent human beings would have to atone for that, at least apologize. What happens to your, you know, your sense of self? How you view who you are? You have to do that. I mean, even if you don't go make amends, <laughs> even if you don't, what are you thinking in your? What, what do you think deep down in self, deep down inside about yourself? Again, there are indications that this long before you get to that point, there are indications that this is a possibility that, and, and, and these walls go up to keep reason out and keep uh, yourself intact. How you see and how you view yourself, keep it intact so you don't have to take that accountability. How is that done? Jonathan Haidt called it post hoc rationalization. The internal attorney, the litigator takes over to justify everything. Mostly to ourselves, but to other people, too. You see this all over. You see this every single day. <laughs> people aren't, they're not, they're not jabbing at the truth. They're not searching for the truth. They're not trying to cultivate anything truthful. They're just basically a couple of hack amateur attorneys litigating at each other, arguing. Not trying to get to the truth. No litigator, no lawyers trying to get to the truth. you kidding me? Johnny Cochran, was he trying to get to the truth? Tim McVeigh had an attorney. Was he trying to get to the... No, they're advocating. Arguing for. Trying to win an argument and trying to get to the truth are not... They're not one of the same. You You could have people arguing whether or not bleach or ammonia is better for you. Right? One person could, take the, could advocate for bleach. The other could advocate for ammonia. <laughs> and they're going to be espousing the virtues of drinking bleach or ammonia to try to win the argument. You're not getting at the truth. That's what lawyers do. They don't, they don't, they don't, lawyers are not paid to find truth. They're not investigators. They're defenders, advocates. And that's what people do. In these political discussions, or you start getting too close to the truth, too close, to too close to the core of an uncomfortable truth. People go into litigation mode, this is Emerson, the retained attorney. That's how people do it. They do this, we do this to ourselves. Do this in our own minds. As well as to, to other people. That's the storyteller. I've I've yet to really fully delve into that, the storytelling mind. I've been been dancing around it and (laughs) hinting at it for a long time. I have yet to get there. But that really, I mean, that's, that's such a huge part of this. Because at its core, at its core, propaganda is a political story, a social story. It's a narrative. That's it. It's a spin. It's a fairy tale. Something that we tell ourselves. Joan Didion. What was that book? Well, I have it in here somewhere. I should know it off the top of my head, but I don't. But she's got a collection of, uh, oh, there it is, a collection of essays. It's right back there. Uh, red book. <laughs> it's got all a bunch of, like, I don't know, dozens of her essays in there. Big, thick volume. But the name of it is We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live. And I think that's true. That's obviously true. There's a lot of, believe it or not, there's been a lot of research done on this, the storyteller mind, more than I expected Defined. It goes back. It's evolutionary. You know, how does a barely evolved ape with some mysterious sense of consciousness? How does it explain thunder and lightning and its relationship to it? Another animal that I know of. They might be out there, but none that you know can be definitively proven have this sense of this infantile sense of consciousness that they've got to deal with self-consciousness. It's why am I here? Who am I? What's my purpose in this life? you think a raccoon asks that question now? It knows to breed, to eat, not get killed, not get run over by a motorbike. There's been a few other things that have happened over the last couple of years that have shut this thing down that have, that have put it on, kind of, yeah. I don't know, put it into suspended animation for extended periods of time. Now, this is a significant one because I don't know how to pivot this. And really, to be honest with you, I'm sick and tired of coming back after three, four, five, six months and having the same conversation with you about, well, why wasn't I here? Because I know I've said all this before, most of it. And I still haven't gotten past it. I don't know how to do this. The propaganda stuff, I knew what to do. I could study it. You know, if I, I thought that if I could figure out the techniques and the psychological manipulations, the levers being pulled within the the propagandist's mind, exploiting its emotions, well, well maybe I could craft a tool that I could give away. Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> There's a guy named Robert Trivers. This guy right here, if you're watching the video, see him. Uh, He's got a book. He's got a couple of books out. He's, uh, I think he's an evolutionary biologist, believe it or not. But he moved into the study of deception, human deceit and self-deception. He's got this book, uh, Deceit and Self-Deception. Excellent. It just started it, uh, this week. I'm not very far into it. I've kind of picked through a few different places. He's also got another one called uh, The Folly of Fools, The Logic of Deceit, The Logic of Deceit, and Self-Deception in Human Life. The logic of deceit. Understanding it. From his point of view and his perspective. Inherent human deceit is what I call it. Survived natural selection for a reason. We learned to do this and became part of who we are. What we do. Every human being. You, me, your mother, your grandmother, your sweet little grandma. She's just as full of shit as anybody else. Inherent human deceit. It serves an evolutionary purpose. What that purpose is, that's the interesting thing. It also, as I said, runs right back down propaganda road because if it's inherent, can we eliminate it in any aspect of our lives? The media, political propaganda, interpersonal relationships... Is it something that can be fixed? Now, I'm a handsome man. I consider myself rather smart, obviously, presuming to podcast, do stuff like this. (laughs) I don't have a very, you know, I wouldn't say that I have a minuscule self-opinion. However, I'm not going to fight human evolution. I'm not going to fix anything. So my choice, I guess, my decision, uh, has been to at least understand it. Because this, realizing, I didn't want to get into, hmm, I probably should. You know what, I'm just going to start this uh, section from the beginning. Great. It's probably the longest intro I've ever done. <laughs> Inherent human deceit, the opening salvo. For me, your friendly host, it's boiled down to a very, very basic simple question. Whether in general, now in general, collectively, we are inherently good little critters who are capable of evil or If we're inherently evil critters capable of doing good i've got an entire piece put up uh, put together it's not finished it's really really long this is uh, multiple podcasts worth of stuff or several uh, several substack posts if i ever do another one but i call it the the god devil parable talked about it before but it's this split between human beings are we good people who are sometimes capable of committing atrocious acts, or are we beasts who sometimes inadvertently and obliviously step in a pile of decency? It's not an easy question. And I think most of the time, most of the answers you're going to get when you answer that question is going to be a reflection of how people need to see themselves. Not a clear objective observation on humanity itself, but on how they want what kind of self-image that they have, and how genuine and authentic that self-image is capable of being. Now, when he asks questions like that, questions of good and evil. Are we good? Are we evil? Of course, presupposes that there's an accepted universal and external concept of good, evil, justice, all that stuff, right? Pretty aggressive presupposition that there are external concepts of good, evil, and justice. I've said on the show a million times, justice doesn't exist anywhere outside of the human mind. Nowhere else in the universe does justice exist except the human brain, the human imagination. A lot of people, did you hear that thunder? Ooh, move, let don't lose power. A lot of people feel the same way about concepts of good and evil. All of this stuff presupposes that these are uh, solid, concrete definitions that are not open to interpretation. Because if people are just being people, if people are just being who they are when they do a horrendous thing, is that evil? Cancer don't know it's cancer. Wolf don't know it's a wolf, right? Just doing what it does. So are these things that we say are evil? If they're just human nature and just human beings being who they are, are they really evil or is it just against a social norm that we've established? All this philosophical shit. I've traveled around Central America, all over the place. I've been to Palenque, I've been to Tikal, uh, Chichen Itza. That was nice. I've seen Copan. Lots of liberals will sing the praises of Mayan culture. Well, my question is, were the Mayans... Were they being good and just when they were sacrificing, eating children? I mean, it was their custom, <laughs> right? Were they being good people at that point in time? Couldn't the custom, you know, it was created, it was sanctioned, it was practiced by righteous human beings, at least in their perspective, could they be judged as evil? These customs. People defend these indigenous cultures all the time, And you never hear about stuff like that. Slavery, capturing neighboring tribes and taking people, yeah, all this. Cannibalism, is that evil? Now, if that cannot be deemed as evil because it was their custom, the whole trendy concept of North American slavery, global concept, really, of slavery being judged as evil, after the fact, of course, crumbles under megatons of perfumed hypocrisy. You're telling me that sacrificing and eating children is okay because it's the indigenous cultures, it's the indigenous people's way, <laughs> but that slavery is the height of evil? That's industrial grade hypocrisy. As far as this question goes between are people good, capable of evil, or evil and capable of good, the difference between that, whatever that question, I am not optimistic about this. Everything that I'm seeing, everything I'm reading, everything, we're beasts, beasts. A righteous, noble species wouldn't have to self-domesticate. Why do we self-domesticate ourselves into civilized culture? It's probably a pretty barbaric existence before we did. Why? Because we're barbaric people. We're barbaric apes. That's one way to look at it, and most days that's exactly how I see it. But what is indisputable is that it might not matter. Because people are chronically and hopelessly unaware and usually just simply full of shit. Now, if you don't believe me, but still want to drive yourself nuts, put on some clear glasses. Take the rosy colored ones off. You don't have to tell anybody about this. Just pay quiet attention to how many times each and every day you practice deceptive public relations in order to selfishly, even altruistically, the selfish part doesn't really matter, even altruistically manipulate and influence people or increase your own status is so common. That almost everyone does it on reflex without even thinking about it. It's so second nature that people lie to and deceive themselves. Lying and deception are not character flaws. They're universal and innate human traits. They are as much a part of us as thumbs, nipples, and taint. And this right here, this little chunk, is what I've called the uh, bite from the rotten allegorical apple. That has, in a large part, (laughs) ruined people for me. I don't trust people. I thought it was just every now and then people would lie to you. And some people were liars, and sometimes they'll they'll bullshit you. When you start paying attention to that in yourself. Personal example, what happened to me? Like, I used to uh, not think twice. Like, if I didn't want to go someplace and somebody invited me to go, I'd make up some stupid excuse. Every single person does that. I never thought twice about it until I started looking into this stuff. It's a little white lie. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody even thinks about it. Nobody thinks twice about telling a lie, being deceitful, deceptive, to avoid telling someone, no, I just don't want to go to your party. (laughs) Right? Why is that? I mean, it seems like such a silly little question. It seems like such a stupid, basic little question. Like most people wouldn't think twice about that. But if that's such second nature and so accepted to bullshit people, to lie to people, to save your own face, to save feelings, how deep does it go? And the fact that it's second nature, the fact that it's almost an automatic reflex that you don't put any thought into, that makes it worse. So now, (laughs) whenever I invite somebody over or whatever, that's where my head goes. You just don't want to come? Why don't you just say so? You don't have to lie to me about it. Now I don't trust you. That's a snowball. That's an avalanche. Once you start that rolling, they're never going to tell you. You can't confront them. They're not going to tell you the fucking truth. But then you start wondering about everybody. You start looking for it. You start looking for it in yourself. Do I still do that? If I don't want to go someplace, do I make up some stupid excuse? I try not to. Sometimes it's unavoidable. But I really try to either not say anything, not give an excuse so I don't have to lie. Or sometimes I've just said, I just don't feel like it. But there are other times that I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And I really, honestly, I don't want my relationship, my relationship, selfishly, my relationship with this other person damaged. It's not that I care so much about damaging the other person, but I care about damaging their feelings to the point where their relationship with me is in jeopardy. You're not sparing someone's feelings when you're doing that. It's a completely narcissistic act. You're doing that for you. You're not doing that for another person. You're doing that to save your relationship, your status with that other person. I mean, that's why people don't say what they really mean. That's what they really think. They may tell themselves that they don't want to hurt this person's feelings, but they don't want those feelings hurt because they want that relationship left unaffected. So rather than saying, I just don't want to go to your house today, I don't feel like hanging out with you today (laughs) and and risking this, this blowback you know, as far as the relationship goes, they make up. A, you understand this. You understand this inherently. What I don't think most people understand is that it's not to save their feelings; it's to save the reaction that they would get from that person being inflicted upon them. So, who is that? I mean, is this really an altruistic act? Are you really concerned about the other person? No, this is about you, and that's the core of it. I'll give you another example. I have a questionable. <laughs> Education, history, especially uh, high school. I literally did the very least I could do to get out of high school. English was not my best subject. I hated English. The only thing I hated more than English was social studies. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? Anyway, 15 years ago, I started my traveling stuff, and I started writing. Now, I didn't think a lot about writing back then because I, I, I had done radio, and I, I wrote basically for the, uh, for the ear, not for the eye. I started doing a lot of writing, a lot of writing, and I quickly started to realize I had really shitty grammar, at least written grammar, right? Uh, like I would spell, I spelled weather, R A T H E R, rather. Until Chris pointed out that, uh, you know, that's weather, right? W E W H E T H E R. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I've been writing like a, like a buffoon. Nobody said anything to me. Trying to save my feelings. Trying to encourage me, maybe. So I've been fighting this grammar bug forever. I'm never going to catch up. <laughs> anyway, 2008, I'm writing a lot. Writing a lot of blog posts. Getting a lot of compliments. I wouldn't say a lot. But getting some compliments from some people that are better educated than I am about how good of a writer I was. How much they enjoyed my writing. Maybe they did enjoy it, but the, the, the comments that stick out were the ones that said, you're a good writer, Todd. Now you fast forward ten years when I actually started to get a little bit of skill with this, and read a lot more, I actually knew what good writing was, and then I go back and I read my old stuff and it's cringeworthy. It's like radio, man. The first year in radio, I can't listen to those tapes. It's terrible. I thought they were great then, but they sucked. I still, it's hard for me to listen to them. It's like Ew. a lot of times I get the same reaction from those early blog posts. And it's a little different because it's you know it wasn't. It was a certain time in in my life, and the focus was on what I was doing. The ideas, not trying to be a fancy writer. But the thing that I remember, one of the things that I remember were all of these people or certain people telling me how good I was at it when it's obvious, deathly obvious, that I wasn't. So now I have this echo in my head. You lied to me. No, we were supporting you. You weren't supporting me. You wanted to support me. You wanted to help me. You can say, hey, you know what, if you want to do this, if you're going to do this and, and try to do a lot of it, and you're trying to do anything with it, you need to work on some things. Like the difference between weather and weather. <laughs> One person told me about that. Nobody else did. People that knew better. Now, going back to the example that I used earlier, you're going to lie to somebody about why you don't want to go to their house. You're, going to do, you're not doing it to save their feelings. You're doing it to save the relationship. Or maybe, in this case... Maybe they were doing this to enhance the relationship, to flatter me, to make me feel good about myself so I'd feel good about them, instead of actually trying to help me make progress in this thing I was struggling with. Is that friendship. It's not honest. I've had this conversation with many, many, many people. Almost had it again tonight, actually. But this this goes all the way back to 08 or 09 with Chris. We were talking about friendship. Would you rather your friend tells you the truth or would you rather your friend just gave you blind support? Is that friendship? Is blind support friendship? If you know better, if you're being deceitful, wouldn't being honest and pointing something out that maybe they've missed, wouldn't that be more helpful even if (laughs) the ego is bruised a little bit? I firmly believe that if you're a friend, you should tell your friend the fucking truth. If you're concerned about your friend, if you have your friend's best interest at heart, you should tell them the truth. If you have your best interest at heart, you're going to tell them what they want to hear. Fluff them up. And by fluffing them up, you're fluffing yourself up in their eyes. That's narcissistic. That's selfish. But this is something, again, I know I'm in the minority here. Almost everybody has that, oh, you've got to support your friend's attitude. You do have to support your friend. Sometimes supporting your friends means giving honest feedback, helping them to improve. That's <laughs> it's self-evident. Now people don't like it. <laughs> I thought you were my friend. I am your damn friend. why well, I'm telling you this. If you weren't my friend, I'd just roll my eyes and walk away. Oh, you sound great. The devil didn't do it. It's not an external something you can blame, Some something outside of you making you do this. It's in the DNA. This is evolution. My question is why? This is what I really want to know. If I'm going to move forward here, if I'm going to understand this, and I'm going to make friends with this thing that I'm calling my brain tumor, this cynicism that's taken over as I've started to kind of investigate how ubiquitous this really is, if I'm going to get past this and I'm going to learn to live with it, and not destroy so many relationships, I have got to figure out how to do this. And that's the path. Why? It's there. Obviously, it's there for a fucking reason. What's that reason? What does it do? How does it help us? And obviously, there's a complete subset here, a subsection that has to do with propaganda. Anyway, about Joan Didion, I'm reading her book, The Year of Magical Thinking. Just got it in the mail this week. Uh, it's about the death of her husband, and I do believe her daughter. I haven't gotten to that part yet. I think her daughter and her husband died almost in rapid succession. I think in 2003 or 2004. I think it was 04. But the book, your magical thinking, is about how the death of these two very these people who were so close to her affected her own grasp of reality. This is Joan Didion, one of the most self aware people you're going to read, going all the way back to the 60s. And she was she she has the self awareness. I don't think she could do it. Obviously, she couldn't do it in real time. She there's a couple of examples where she kind of understood. She kind of had a hint of what was going on, but she could go back and she could self examine what happened to her. What happened to her disconnect from reality as she was suffering this insane amount of grief after the death of her husband. I think her daughter. This disconnection from reality. That's part of it. Self deception. It's serving a purpose, right? With her, again, I haven't finished this book yet, but one of them was that she she found herself unable to like get rid of his clothes or his shoes. She didn't understand why. She just couldn't get rid of him. I don't know for however long after he died, but only after the fact did she realize that the reason she couldn't do that is because she was waiting for him to come back, and he'd need his shoes. Self-deception, It's serving some kind of purpose, some sort of therapeutic, psychological purpose, emotional purpose in the wake of her husband's death. It's there for a reason. There's another couple of books. I just mentioned them. Robert Trivers. If you're interested in this stuff, that's a name you need to know. Robert Trivers. T-R-I-V-E-R-S. He's that that evolutionary biologist who specializes in deceit. (laughs) Anyway, I'm reading these people. I'm reading both Didion's, um, I'm reading her anyway, but I'm reading your magical thinking. I've delved into Trivers because this is an exercise for me in trying to understand and make friends with that apple-induced self-inflicted brain tumor that I've got. This cynicism where I do not trust what people say anymore. This is Nietzsche, man. This is gazing into the abyss and having the abyss gaze back into you. You see what's inside of your own little core here, your own, and then you start to apply it because you have to, right? Once you get these tools, you got to use them. The abyss gazing into you. Boy, that's the only way forward. I have to make friends with it. I have to learn how to understand it. Because, again, at Amy, I ain't no messiah. I am not the deceit messiah. (laughs) Ain't nobody fixing this. You ain't fixing it. Nobody's fixing it. It's there for a reason. It's so ingrained in us. Deceit and self-deception. So ingrained into us. That the only way forward is is comprehension. Trying to understand why. And then maybe working with it then. You have a choice. I said, I'm only halfway through your magical thinking, Joan Didion. But uh, I got to say, if you're on the fence, you've maybe seen this book or thought about buying it, do it. Because it's one of the most honest, blunt, self-aware things that I have ever read. I mentioned her collection of essays. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Think about that title for a minute. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Stories, narratives, fictions. We're like children. We still largely live in the magical land of make believe. It's true. For some of us, these stories are black ruminations. Dark ruminations, horror stories told over and over again that paint and poison every mundane detail of everyday life and, yeah, sometimes, oftentimes, lead to depression. A direct line from there can also be drawn straight from these obsessive ruminations to political fanaticism. Hmm? It's where every social imperfection screams injustice. Ruminations. Ruminating on injustice. That's just an example. There are several more I'm sure you could probably think of on your own, but you're obsessed with this internal narrative, this internal horror story. So everything that you see in the world, every imperfection in the world can be blamed on that. Racism. Sexism. How am I a victim today? Victimization is is a rumination. Chronic victimization, ruminating on how everything in your life is unfair. You're ruminating on injustice, your own personal injustice, most often. Not always. In the context of political fanaticism, of course, it's not just you. You're, you're ruminating on everything, that every bad thing that happens to some person in the world. Injustice. It's the fault of some externally manifested devil or another. One or another. Some devil. Some conjured up demon. Usually implanted by you know, propaganda, political organizations, agenda drivers, whoever. Again, finally getting my, fo- my my feet back underneath me a little bit, it feels like. An hour in. <laughs> but there is a path to empathy here. There is a path to empathy. Again, it runs through the jungle of collective self-awareness, understanding that we are storytellers, not truth-seekers, especially when the truth hurts, when the truth is uncomfortable, when the truth threatens our worldview, our self-image, our narratives. When the truth threatens the story, the story is always going to win, unless you're armored for the fight. The focus on deceit, especially self-deception, ultimately the storyteller mind, as I, said, as I just said, it, also, it goes directly to the core of propaganda and why it works. I mean, why does it work? It's sometimes so obvious, but it works so often. Why? That's tied to even another more fundamental question. Are people even capable of seeing the world as it actually is? Our relativist friends say no. They believe that their own chosen perspective, their their singular first-person perception, is their reality, their own special reality. I get my own reality. I enthusiastically dismiss these people out of hand, categorically. There's some others, some other people, and they're discussing this question about, can people see reality? There's a certain Buddhist sect, I can never remember who they are, but they believe that people are completely, physically Incapable of observing reality. That it's all just a a painted game in our mind, a painted scenario in our heads. A story. An interpretation. An interpretation told in narrative form in our own minds. It would appear to me (laughs) that these people, these Buddhists, were probably uh, closer to the truth than the other ones at least pertaining to base-model human beings, you know, the ones that are straight out of the box. But if that were the case, if that were the case, if people were completely incapable of seeing the world, seeing the universe as it is, we would have never left the ground. No hard-earned truth, scientific or otherwise, could have ever been found, right? There's obviously a link between the rational mind and vigilantly fighting Human nature's tendency toward fiction. And I think that is best seen in science. But even in science, self-delusion, self-interest, narcissism, (laughs) and plain old status-seeking can lead to mistakes and rampant deceit. In science. Now, you can insert your uh, pandemic stuff here if you want to. I'm not going to go there. But (laughs) you've seen the news about uh, the origin stuff, right? These are scientists. They shouldn't lie. They'll never lie to us. They're seeking truth, are they? Until some other interest gets involved, maybe. They're not infallible. And because of this, their standards of independent verification, experiment, replication, often brutal peer review, brutal peer review process, which itself uh, can fall victim to interpersonal spite, petty attacks, all the stuff that the rest of us layman's are subject to all the time. Even the best trained among us routinely fall prey to lying and worse self-deception. What hope? I mean, these scientists routinely fall prey to lying and self-deception. Even scientists, if they're doing it, if they're susceptible, if they have to inoculate, insulate themselves from it via the scientific method, what hope do the completely oblivious and unaware have of fighting it within themselves? Furthermore, what hope do they have of fending off propaganda attacks intentionally, skillfully made to exploit their own storytelling minds, their emotional minds? If scientists, with the scientific method and all of that training behind them, still fall prey to deceit and self-deception, manipulation, what hope do people with zero training and no self-awareness have? Good luck. Got a quote for you. It's from a book called The Story Paradox. Quote goes like this by author Jonathan Gottschall. Story is a precious tool for teaching and learning, but this also makes it a perfect tool for manipulation and indoctrination. Yes, narratives are the primary tool we use to make sense of the world. But they're also our main tools for fabricating dangerous nonsense. Yes, stories typically have moral dimensions that reinforce pro-social behavior. But in their monotonous obsession with plots of villainy and justice, oh, there's that word again, they gratify and reinforce our instincts for savage retribution and moral sanctimony. The Righteous Warrior. <laughs> what lull called proselytes and militants, fed by propaganda. What is Propaganda. Propaganda is a social political story, and part of the story paradox. Again, one could be forgiven, maybe should be forgiven. <laughs> wow, uh, for just giving up, giving in. This has gone a lot longer than I thought it would, so I'm going to wrap this up. I've got, I've still got two more pages, three more. Jesus Christ! One, two, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should recut this. I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to wrap this up. This part of it, anyway, <coughs> with uh, a line from this Robert Trevor's book. Because what's, some, what's somebody supposed to do? I mean, if it's a hopeless fight, if you can never fight and never win the battle against deceit and self-deception, the inability to see the world as it is, to accept the world as it is, if you can never win that, I'm asking myself this every fucking day, what is the point? Understanding it. Because, again... Once the genie's out of the bottle, it's like, it's like losing your religion. You just can't take that awareness and lose it. You can't leave it by the side of the road. You can't throw it out the window with your cigarette butt. You're going to know it's there from now on until you die. So you don't have a choice, really. I mean, you do. You go live in a cabin in Montana. Beautiful state, by the way. Love Montana. I just don't want to live in a cabin up in the, the frigging mountains. <laughs> no, not by myself, anyway. So if you're going to have any sort of a social life, any kind of friendship, family, anything, you've got to understand it, and you've got to learn to live with it, both in other people, but also in yourself. But that's another thing. Once you understand it, you're not just, you're not just coughing up, spitting out these mindless, thoughtless deceits and deceptions. And you're also monitoring your own thought processes. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> and this is a great example. I, I mean, I could be deceiving myself right now. I could be saying that I'm having this existential crisis for this podca- with this podcast because I don't know what I'm going to be able to do with it, which is on, on some level true. But there's also the possibility, I'm afraid this damn thing's going to actually be successful. And what does that mean? What does success with this podcast actually mean? With the, the, the material that I'm putting out, especially if I go it's not a matter of if, but when, I go back to the anti-woke stuff. What would that mean? What would, you know, I've said it on this show once before, that without the monetization, my best case scenario is to become successful enough to be shot. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I've gotten over the self-delusion that I'm a likable person anyway. I'm not. I understand that. I could be funny, and my friends kind of like me. But when I start running down this road, when I start talking about this stuff, and when I have my, my, my sights set on your political horseshit, and I'm targeting you <laughs> or your kind, I am not a likable person. I understand it took me a long time to come to terms with that. where where is that going to take me if this podcast decides it wants to take off at some point? Do I want to deal with all that? I had to ask myself that. Part of it is that I'm afraid of what would happen if this thing actually became successful. And if it's worth even risking that for nothing, because I'm not going to change it. I used to think I could change the world. Another self-deception. <laughs> a lot of them. I probably should share more of these at some point, because I, I do. I, it's hard for me. The work that I've done on myself over the last 15 years, I don't share a lot of that stuff because it's intensely personal. I don't like that kind of vulnerability because, (laughs) let's face it, this thing's on the internet, right? And internet critters suck. They just suck. I don't like them. I don't like dealing with I don't like dealing with random virtual wildlife most of the time. Most of the time, I don't even give you a chance. But taking that kind of stuff, with the kind of material, the kind of material that's critical of human beings in general, and then adding that sort of vulnerability to it, getting hitting a little close to home for a lot of people triggering this negative reaction in me because i'm hitting close to home or maybe i'm saying things a little too bluntly maybe i'm a little mean and then giving this ammunition to somebody else fuck no are you kidding me bitch please who would do that who would who would do that to themselves i can give you little glimpses here and there but that's where the that's where the good stuff is it's hard I forgot where I was going with that. I think that was it. Anyway, Robert Trivers, in his book, uh, Deceit and Self-Deception, this is on page 323, to fight one's own self-deception or not. And he asks the question, should we fight these tendencies in ourselves? Part of what he says here is they are advancing our own evolutionary interests. He's being a little facetious here. Surely it must be useful to adjust our own self-deception strategically. Toward situations where it is most likely to be effective, but oppose in general. (laughs) Why? Does this not violate our attachment to evolutionary self-interest? So what he's saying is it's there for a reason. Shouldn't we embrace it, deploy it strategically? Or does that violate our our attachment to evolutionary self-interest? If we abandon self-deception or deception, Either or. I think he's talking about both here. I think it's... uh, now self-deception. If we abandon self-deception, are we going against our own evolutionary interest? It's there for a reason. It survived natural selection. So should we just deal with it? Just run with it? It's a great question, right? You take it away, what are you fucking with? Now, he says his own answer is simple and personal. I could care less. Self-deception by serving deception only encourages it. And more deception is not something I favor. This is Trivers. I'm reading directly from the book here. I do not believe in building one's life, one's relationships, or one's society on lies. Amen. The moral status of deceit with self-deception seems even lower than that of simple deception alone, since simple deception fools only one organism. But when combined with self-deception, two are being deceived. In addition, by deceiving yourself, you are spoiling your own temple or structure. The sanctity of your own mind. I'm adding that. That's my reword there. He says you are agreeing to base your own behavior on falsehoods with negative downstream effects that may be very hard to guess, yet intensify with time. He continues on to say it is worth noting that we have also been selected, natural selection, to rape on occasion, to wage aggressive war when it suits us, and to abuse our own children if this brings some compensating return benefit, Yet. I embrace none of these actions, regardless of whether they have been favored natural selection in the past. As David Hagg once put it, his genes could—this <laughs> is great. <laughs> Let's start again. As David Hagg once put it, his genes could not care less about him, and he feels the same toward his genes. So again, this goes back, I think, to the losing the religion thing. Now, once you're aware, it becomes a choice. To either stick your head in the sand or make a decision to try to do the hard work to at least understand and minimize something that you see yourself doing. Deceiving yourself. Hard to cut through that. You're never going to completely stop doing that. Nobody is. But the awareness, that's a start. And I think, to take it back to the podcast, the original point of this podcast, if that, if there is Any solution to this propaganda problem, the disinformation problem, the problem of society ripping itself apart at the seams with this new technology, this new propaganda dissemination technology, Agitprom. If there is a solution to it, it's not going to come from out there. It's going to come from us. We have to do this, and that. the only way to do this is through collective self-awareness. It's the only thing. I'm not saying it's going to work. It's like what I said about Joe Biden back in 2020. Yeah, Joe Biden, he might not bring us together, (laughs) clearly. (laughs) I gave him a chance. And Trump sure as hell wasn't going to do it. So the only possible solution, the only one who could possibly make this happen out of the choice that we have is Joe Biden. Well, the only thing that can possibly happen, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm skeptical. i But the only thing that can work is an evolutionary leap in collective self-awareness, learning to monitor our own thoughts, our own actions, to explore, to to be observers of our own minds, our own thoughts, and honestly being able to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? What do I really mean by this? Why am I reacting this way? And and that's that's not enough. Giving honest answers to it, raw, painful, honest answers. It's the only thing that's self awareness. When you start to understand yourself, then you start to understand other people. Know thyself, Noski Teabsom Tenoski noski Say it however you want. Uh, oracle thing. Know thyself to know other people. That's the path to empathy too, right? But you understand people. You can't empathize with people you don't understand, right? Well, the best way to understand other people is to strive to understand yourself. <clears throat> this podcast <clears throat> could either be really good or it might be a pile of shit. I don't know, or I'll find out. Might be delayed today. It's late. Went a lot longer than I intended it to, so I might be uh, releasing this on a Sunday. Sunday. <sighs> DonzillaX at gmail.com if you want to get with me. Don't have the uh, Twitter page up anymore. Don't worry about that. There is a Facebook page, uh, Escaping the Cave. Got the, the Substack site over there. DonzillaX again. That's probably where you want to go. I uh, got the YouTube thing up there. I haven't done anything with it in a few months. Probably have some clips up there, I think, from this. Maybe. And, of course, you need to subscribe if you like this podcast. Subscribe to it, damn it. Send it to somebody who might like it, damn it. I'm not monetizing. I sure as hell not paying to market the damn thing. It's up to you. If you like it, share it. Please. <coughs> Power didn't go out. Sweet. <sighs> I'm beat. We'll talk to you next time. So long.